We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Today on the podcast, we're turning the tables and interviewing our very own Carl McCollman. Carl's the author of Befriending Silence, The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, Christian Mystics, 108 Seers, Saints, and Sages, and Answering the Contemplative Call. He lives near Atlanta, Georgia, where he's a member of the Lay Cistercians of Our Lady of the Holy Spirit, a contemplative community under the spiritual guidance of Trappist monks. Most recently, Carl released a book titled Unteachable Lessons, Why Wisdom Can't Be Taught and Why that's okay. In the book, he says, these are the lessons taught to us in silence, and the curriculum is life. The syllabus is nothing more than our willingness to be present. And normally we would welcome our guest to the podcast, but as you all know, Carl's with us all the time. So Carl, I'm so glad that um, you're willing to let us uh, torture you with some questions. And I'd love to hear more about the birthplace of this book and the origin for um, how this rose up in you. Well, thanks, Cassidy. There's there's kind of, I guess, two stages for the birth of this book. And the original Genesis point would have been a conversation that I had when I was either a senior in high school or shortly after graduating from high school with the organist of my family's church. We went to a Lutheran church in Hampton, Virginia, Gloria Day Lutheran Church. And the organist at that time was a fellow named Steve, and he and I had become friends. And I, I should mention, I was kind of, you know, a nerdy kid, which is no surprise since I'm now a nerdy middle-aged guy. I, you know, I was a bit of a bookworm and a little socially awkward, you know, that, that whole kind of thing, very shy. And so this guy kind of took me under his wing and, you know, was just kind of encouraging me and kind of mentoring me a little. And I guess, you know, we were having a conversation one day and, and this is still my MO. When I want to learn something new, the first thing I want to do is read a book about it. And so I probably made some sort of comment, you know, about, I, w I wish there was a book on, you know, how to ask a girl out for a date or, you know, or, or how to feel happy or whatever, whatever the conversation may be. The particulars of the conversation are lost in the mists of time. But what I remember was his comment, and it was a little sarcastic, but also something I think I really needed to hear. And he said, Carl, the answers you're seeking, you are not going to find in a book. And for somebody who was such a total, you know, bookworm, that was kind of an alarming thing to hear, but I think I needed to hear it. So now let's fast forward probably to, what, 2016, 2017. I, I can't remember when, when the book first kind of was born in its current form, but I was having a conversation with Lil Copan, who was the editor who acquired this book for for Erdman's, who's the publisher. And Lil and I had worked together on a previous book of mine, a book called Befriending Silence. 
a wonderful editor. I've had just a wonderful working relationship with her. And, and we were just bouncing ideas around, you know, just, she was, you know, it was one of those phone calls. Well, Carl, what are you working on? Well, well, I'm not really working on much of anything. Well, what, you know, what's on your heart, what's your passion. And so we were just kind of brainstorming together and, and I don't remember if I even consciously was thinking about that conversation with Steve, you know, from 1979 or not. But I do remember saying to her, you know, I would love to write a book about how you can't find wisdom in a book. And she said, ooh, I like that idea. And so that was the kind of the, the genesis point of the book. But again, following kind of this bit of mentoring advice I had gotten many, many years ago. So I don't remember how we came up with the title Unteachable Lessons. It, it, it was a title that, that Lil and I came up with together. You know, so often books get their title from, you know, the marketing committee at the publisher. But this particular book, we, we came up with the title, you know, and, and, and again, just this notion that wisdom at the end of the day is something that, that we do receive from others but we don't receive it through taking a workshop or completing a course or reading the right book. Even though I think all of those things can certainly support the human quest for wisdom and for maturity. But there's a level on which, you know, and this is how I, I kind of begin the book with this idea that sometimes words get in the way. And sometimes you know, going to a workshop gets in the way or reading a lot of books gets in the way that, that we have to learn not through learning, but we have to learn through living. Yeah. And that, that reminds me just how many stories from your life are layered in this book so beautifully. And I've noticed that I love that I can just pick it up and read something from any section and find a, an unteachable lesson, so to speak, and be able to reflect on that and be able to think about that. Whereas you can also read it from, from cover to cover. And it's just amazing how you're able to, to weave it together so nicely like that. What I find about this book that, that really, really struck me is because I've read your other stuff and you've, you have a, I've always liked your writing because you have this tone that really is nice that you, I can tell that you've done the work. And that you've thought this through and you've done the research, but the tone makes it like we're hanging out together and you're telling it to me in a way that's uh, approachable, you know, that, and, and I've always, I've always appreciated that. I, I find that the best books are the ones that do that. The ones that can, uh, you can tell the author knows what they're talking about. They're not making this up. They've looked it up. They've done the research. I'm sure they've got pages of notes but when you're reading the book, it doesn't come across like you're reading their notes. It's been processed. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoy that. I, this book in particular, though, is so, you always do this, but this book is so personal. And I'm wondering if, if you struggled with that as a writer, uh, because it seems to me, I remember a couple of times how I, I thought to myself, there are a couple of pages where I thought, Carl is extremely brave. I'm not sure I would have published this. <laughs> there's a couple places especially yeah, that first chapter yeah that first stories, yeah, yeah that first chapter slapped me um because i mm -hmm. was thinking you you really let the you know the 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 curtains open and we got to see you being vulnerable 
in a in a way that's so moving. Uh, and I just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts about maybe the fear of that, or did you have to overcome that, or did that come natural, or? You know, it's interesting because Martin Laird, in his endorsement, he describes it as a memoir. Mm. And and I remember when I read that and I thought, it's not a memoir. I didn't set out to write a memoir. You know, I was not thinking memoirish thoughts as mm-hmm. I wrote it. Mm-hmm. But the book really was written around the concept, not around my story. Right. Uh, but out of those early conversations, again, going back to my editor and I, we talked about, you know, the concept and the reality is, you know, if you're not, if you're writing a book for a general audience, as opposed to for a more academic or specialized audience, you, you know, you lead with stories, right? You you know, you tell a story to illustrate the point you're trying to make. That's just, that's just creative nonfiction 101. Right. You know? And so, so I think in the early stages, I really saw this book as, as having some of my stories, but maybe some stories from other people, maybe some stories from the saints and from the mystics. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the original idea. But, but as the book began to take shape, what I found was that the stories that had the most, I guess, energy for me were my stories. Mm-hmm. And so rather than, you know, trying, I mean, the, the, the chapter on trust, I, I could have easily written that chapter about a Julian of Norwich mm-hmm. or, or for that, you know, an Abraham for mm-hmm. that matter. You know, there are so many examples in the tradition of people who, um, you know, who stepped out into trust and it just made all the difference in their lives. But then at the end of the day, to sit down and talk about how I struggle with trust, you know, to borrow the phrase from, um, uh, Sam Keen, there was a fire in my belly mm. that just trying to mm. tell someone else's story didn't, you know, the fire wasn't ignited. So, so it, it kind of became an accidental book about my own life. But again, you know, always in the purpose of the, of the overriding concept, right? You know, so back to this thing about being vulnerable when you write, you know, yeah, it, 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 it scares the hell out of, out of me, at least I would imagine, <laughs> you know, and, and any, any, any writer, you know, but, but I, you know, this is something that, that I've had, had teachers tell me all along writing teachers, if you aren't being fully and absolutely vulnerable when you write, what difference does the writing really make? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of guarded writing out there and, and you guys know, I, the, the, the phrase false self makes me twitch, mm. but, but, you know, but there's a lot of false self writing mm. out there in, in the spiritual world, in the contemplative world, as well as anywhere else. And so, you know, so part of it is, is this question of, you know, how do you tell the truth? I mean, it's that simple. How do you tell the truth? Oh, I'm going to write a story about how my daughter taught me how to love. Then I've got to tell the truth about the ways in which I, you know, was and to some extent still am, you know, kind of self-involved mm-hmm. and that, that that's not always very pretty, <laughs> but, mm. but the, sto- the story needs to be told, you know, and I, when I think about that big fight that Fran and I had when her mother was sick, mm. you know, I mean, I still, you know, I, I still struggle with so much, you know, shame over that, you know, because I was sitting there and screaming at her for no good reason other than I was a selfish person and she made a request of me that I didn't want to answer right. or respond to. But yet that was, that was part of the journey. That was the baseline. You know, that was what got me into, into therapy. 
Right. So, so that, that awful moment, that moment that I'm ashamed of nevertheless became the launching point for my, you know, hopefully my arc of growth and maturity. Yeah. So, you know, so yeah, so you, you just, you just have to tell those stories. If you don't tell them, your, your narrative just doesn't have a lot of weight. Right. I think, I think what I'm struck by too, is that what your stories did was they resonated with me. And even though my stories are different than you, I, I identified and I started to see, I was like, oh, here's where I've been self-involved and, you know, and here, and what's that, why I think that's so good is that you're using words to teach me something that's beyond words in a way that you didn't know you could teach it. <laughs> right? I mean, you actually somehow moved the invisible spiritual thing that's going on. I read it, you know, I start off reading the book thinking I'm learning about Carl and what it what surprises in the middle of the chapter, I feel vulnerable because you've been vulnerable. And so now I've confronted my own vulnerability and it's kind of like you've tricked me. I thought I was learning about Carl and I'm actually learning about myself. So <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, you you should know by now that I'm deceitful. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should always go in knowing that you're going to pull a fast one on me. <laughs> so, al along these these lines of of vulnerability, and we're talking about kind of this vulnerability in unknowing, right? And that usually comes across right as humility in our lives. And Carl, I wonder if. If so, writing so much about this unknowing and being vulnerable and unknowing, did you ever encounter issues of pride or thoughts of using it as an excuse for mm. what did happen in your stories? Oh. If that makes sense. Well, well, writing is, in my experience, writing is a great antidote to pride. Because, <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> because to, draft to, after draft after draft. <laughs> You know, and then going back and, and, and something you thought was so amazing. And then three weeks later, you know, oh, my God, you know, there that's what Anne Lamott calls a shitty first draft. Yeah. It happens to be the fifth draft. <laughs> and so it's a shitty fifth draft. And actually, that's kind of an insult to shitty fifth drafts to compare what I just wrote. But, <laughs> so. So, yeah, you know, the but, the you know, I think, again, back to this question of, you know, the power of telling your story. I had to deal with the desire, yeah, to make excuses, to, you know, to justify, to defend. I mean, all of that, again, talking about when I would lose my temper with my wife or my daughter, or when mm -hmm. I was, was having a fight with my girlfriend because I was over-intellectualizing the situation, you know, any of those kinds of circumstances. And, you know, John of the Cross talks about this in The Dark Night of the Soul. He, he kind of makes fun of people who they go, you know, they go to their confessor and they go to the same confessor over and over again. So they develop a bond with the confessor. And then when they go in, the last thing they want to do is admit to this person, you know, all their sins that they've that they've committed. So what they do is they go in and they kind of dance around it and just make excuses <laughs> <laughs> rather than just being honest and saying, you know, I, mm. I, I did this thing that I'm not, I'm not proud of. So yeah, I think that the spiritual life, the contemplative life is meant to be a school of humility, humility in the best sense of the word, not humiliation, not, mm -hmm. not that mm -hmm. at all, but humility in the classical contemplative sense of, of self-forgetfulness, of being down to earth, of trusting, 
trusting, you know, the spirit of love, the spirit of God and, and trusting the goodness of other people, all of that, that's, that's what authentic humility is. And our biggest obstacle to authentic humility is all of our pride projects, you know, all the scaffolding that we build around ourselves to shore us up because we don't want people to know that our lives are a mess and we don't even want to face it ourselves. But, you know, that's back to the first step of a 12-step program, you know, admitting your life is a mess. Um, it's, such, it's such a liberating thing to do because once you've admitted that, then you're in a place to do something about it, to try to grow, to try to heal, to try to, you know, to shore up those, those, those walls that are crumbling down a little. But you've got to take that first step. Carl, could you share a little bit about your writing process, just how you utilize silence and contemplation and space and breathing room and how you find it and all of that? Well, I mean, I'm a centering prayer practitioner, so I have, I have a daily practice. You know, I mm -hmm. rarely do I miss a day. Uh, you know, I almost always sit at least once a day and most days I sit twice a day. So, so I've got that, you know, kind of anchor in terms mm -hmm. of, of my actual, you know, sitting in front of the computer and staring into the screen. Um, <laughs> I, you know, it is, it is fraught with anxiety and peril and, and I'll do almost mm -hmm. anything to avoid it. I love mm -hmm. kitty cat videos on YouTube. I can watch them for hours. <laughs> We found so, your weakness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Send me a cute kitty cat video, and it's 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 kryptonite <laughs> for this particular author. But, um, but you, know, the, um, you know, when when I finally, it's, you know, I think like so many, what was it? Um, you know, two sayings about deadlines. I love them both. One is anonymous, and that was if it weren't for deadlines, nothing would ever get done. And the other one uh, from Dylan Thomas. You know, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they go by. Right. Uh, so you know, so I can certainly relate to both of those. Um, you know, so I think I write best when I do have a sense of pressure. I do have a sense of an impending deadline. Um, but that's because then I show up. Was it? You know. Woody Allen, 90% of life is just showing up, you know, and, and uh, boy, I'm, I'm full of quotes today. And then there's William Faulkner, you know, I write whenever I get inspired, but of course I, I make a point of being inspired every morning at 9am. Um, I'm not as disciplined as William Faulkner, but, but I do find that when I just sit down and I just allow myself to write and I give myself permission again, back to Anne Lamont to write those shitty first drafts, um, then the magic happens, you know, and, and, and books aren't written, they're rewritten, you know, so, so, so much depends on just trying to get that narrative out there and then to be, to be willing to go back and to salvage what can be salvaged, to rewrite what needs to be rewritten, to, you know, judiciously delete, you know, the, the big chunk that needs to be deleted. Mm. So, um, I don't know, you know, so I, I, I try to write every day. I try to write something every day. I'm not very disciplined. I'm not like a monk in that, you know, or William Fogger in that nine o'clock every morning I'm writing. My life is just too, too, you know, malleable, um, mutable, I guess. But, um, but I do try at some point during the day to spend some time in front of the screen. And it's not always a book project, you know, that's, that also could be my blog you know, or, or even just, you know, I, one thing I've been doing for the last year or two is writing poetry, you know, so I try to write some poetry from time to time. So I've got various different ways that I approach writing. 
and then and then it's really pretty intuitive. You know, I I do set up an outline, but so often I'll I'll write the outline and then I'll end up either radically rewriting it or in more than one case I'll just totally jettison it and start from scratch. So that happens too. So, you know, but then then there's this kind of beautiful moment in the writing process where I I kind of just have to let the writing take me where it takes me. And then sometimes magic happens. The the last chapter of the book, the the chapter on trust is is significantly different from the early drafts of it. Hmm. The little bit about wanting to be a painter when I was a kid, that hmm. was always in the chapter. Hmm. But but in the earlier drafts, it took me into a totally different direction. And I remember uh, sharing it with my editor. At that point, Lil had left Erdman, so I had a different editor, uh, uh, James. Uh, and I shared it with James, and, and he, he responded, and he gave me some thoughts. And then responding to his email, I sat down to work on it and ended up like rewriting, totally rewriting the last two-thirds of the chapter. It just went into a totally different direction. And then I worked on that. And then when I sent that to him, it was really interesting. He wrote back and he said, you know, when I first read it, I wasn't crazy about it. And when I second, the second time I read it, I thought, well, this is Carl's voice. It's not my voice. It's not what I would have written, but I see it's what you needed to have written. Hmm. And then that, that became the chapter that ended up in the book. And, it, and that, you know, it's funny because I feel even more vulnerable about that chapter than I do about the first chapter, because the first chapter is telling a story about something that happened years ago, whereas the last chapter, as I, as I say in the book, is the unteachable lesson I'm still learning, right. you know, so the book kind of ends at the present moment and, and with, you know, just with some thoughts about where I see myself going as a writer in the future. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. Carl, I think it's important to mention and to bring out of all the chapters in this book for this podcast called Encountering Silence, you talk specifically about silence in one of the chapters. And I'm kind of curious as, as to uh, just hearing about your uh, writing process already. Uh, what is this close to the first draft or did this, did this develop over time? Because I'm kind of curious if the podcast played into any of the drafts here. Uh, your exploration of silence with us in a public space as we talk about silence paradoxically all the time. Yeah, um, I think that chapter, it certainly didn't evolve as radically as the yeah. last chapter. The chapter, and I'm trying to even remember what it was called, isn't it the pages on which these words were written? Yes. Yeah, the page on which the words are written. That's yep. the chapter about silence. Yeah, that one I think, I, you know, I'd have to go back and look at the manuscript because after a while it's just a blur. Right, right. But I, but I think that chapter did not evolve as radically as some of the other chapters in the book. And I think you're right, Kevin. I think it's very much because in many ways 
this is some of the conversations that we have had on the podcast. I'm thinking back to some of our earliest episodes, mm. you know, when it was mm. just the three of us before we started bringing in guests mm. and we would, you know, we had an episode on, on adolescence. We had an episode mm -hmm. on childhood. We had an episode on silence as young adults. So we had all these different episodes looking at our own developmental story of silence. And I think that really did prime the pump for me to write this chapter. And of course, what I try to do in this chapter is really then, you know, kind of come up to, to the current day and, and talk about how my relationship with silence through my prayer practice has evolved over 30 years. You know, I think when I first started doing silent prayer. And back then we didn't even call it centering prayer. That's, that's how, you know, mm. how long I've been doing this. I, <laughs> I, I started with it with a ministry called Shalem that, um, Tilden Edwards and Gerald May were kind of the, 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 the core teachers of, and then Lynn Ludy was my particular teacher, uh, back in the 1980s. And I know Thomas Keating and all those folks were doing centering prayer, but that was kind of a different, you know, different uh, neighborhood than the neighborhood I was in. But, but the practice was essentially the same, you know, the practice of finding, finding a, a point of attention to, to reconnect after you're, you know, you wander off into thoughts and, and breathing into the silence and, and just simply being present before the silent presence of God. You know, that, the instructions that I learned from Shalem are so similar to the instructions you still learn today uh, when you go to a centering prayer workshop or, you know, something like that. But, um, but I, when I think about it early on, I don't recall even paying attention to the fact that I was sitting in the presence of silence. Mm. Mm. I mean, I was aware, I, I tell the story of going to that Julian of Norwich quiet day in the book and, mm -hmm. and how that was my first encounter with communal silence. And it was such a meaningful, meaningful day in my life. I still think of that day with just tremendous appreciation, but, but actually entering into the practice, entering into, you know, 20 minutes of silent prayer. Um, you know, and we called it silent prayer. We called it Christian meditation. We called it silent prayer. But, but I think I, I saw the silence as, as an, as what was lacking. Mm. It was silent prayer because I wasn't talking. I wasn't reading words out of a book and I wasn't particularly even paying attention to my thoughts that arose other than to just continually turn back to my prayer word or to turn back to my breath. And so I think it was, I think I was at the monastery before it really kind of clicked for me that silence was more than just an absence, more than just the absence of sound. And so I didn't start working, you know, I, I, I started uh, the practice of silent prayer in the 80s, 83 or 84, and I didn't start studying with the monks until 05. So I had already been like a 20-year veteran of, mm. of, you know, of meditative prayer, silent prayer, before it really you know, just kind of clicked in me that I was given the opportunity for 20 minutes at a time, once or twice a day, I was given the opportunity to simply be present to the silence that is always inside of us. Mm. And I think, I think it was, maybe it was a theological development for me because I think 
you know, like so many, you know, white middle class American Christians, you know, I grew up with this cosmology that God is up in heaven and we're down here on earth and we have to try to be good boys and girls so that when we die, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the rope drops down the rope ladder and we can climb up to heaven, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so this whole idea that, that God is projected out. And so I think this recognition, first of all, that the divine rests within us. That, that, you know, the, was it St. Paul, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, this beautiful kind of affirmation that the divine is already resident within us, within our heart. And that, you know, so how do you touch the face of God? You touch the face of God through the medium of silence. Um, and the silence is always there. It's not something I have to create. It's not something we have to conjure. If anything, it's something we simply have to allow, again, by learning, little by little by little, but by learning to attend to the spaces between the words, the, the page on which the words are printed, you know, the page mm-hmm. is always there, you know, and kind of this recognition that language, which is so essential just for being human, but that you can't have words without a page that the words are printed on. And obviously that's true with, with print, but I would argue that's also true with spoken word because, I mean, think about when you're in a bar, you know, a, a, you know, or a pub, I was just in Scotland being in this loud, noisy pub and you have practically have to shout for the person next to you to hear you. Uh, it's because the page, the atmosphere, the, the air in which your, the vibrations of your voice are being carried, the page is cluttered. Mm. And so we have, mm. we have to, we have to shout to get, to, to communicate. So we, you know, so, so the spoken word needs the page, quote unquote, the page of, of silence of, or relative silence, whether they call it signal to noise, you know, the signal to noise ratio has to be good enough that you can hear the words that are spoken. It's the same thing. If you tried to print, you know, if I put in my, in my printer, you know, that has black ink, but I put a black sheet of paper in it, I'm not going to be able to read what I print. So the white or, you know, whatever color, you know, of, of a piece of paper, that's the silence. The white is the silence that the words are then cast upon. So you cast words on, on, a, on a piece of paper to read the words. You cast words into a silent room to speak the words, you know, or relatively silent. And then in the interior life, our thoughts, and I use thoughts in the centering prayer sense, that's our thoughts, our, our imagination, our feelings, all the, the stuff of consciousness is cast upon that deep interior silence. So the mm. silence is always there. It's always in our hearts. It's always in our minds. And what, what the contemplative prayer process is, is an invitation to notice what's already always there. And then, of course, if you're coming at it from a faith perspective, this recognition that to notice that interior silence is to notice the face of God, because mm-hmm. God meets us in and through the silence. So yeah. so that's, you know, and I'll tell you who else, I've already mentioned him, but Martin <laughs> Laird, you know, the, the, the writings of Martin Laird have been so formational for me, you know, in terms of helping me to really appreciate 
how central and how essential silence is to contemplative practice. So Yeah. You know, I'd really like to close out this time together reading from page 67, which is in that chapter that you just, that you mentioned and that we're kind of talking about right now. And you say, the chief results of clearing away external noise is simply to allow us to come face to face with all the internal noise. So often we discover the paper only to realize how co covered over it is with ink. But we learn to sit with it. And over time, we recognize that paper is always there. We couldn't see the ink without it. We can't listen to the endless noises in our lives without the silence that conveys the noise to us. Ultimately, our task is to be present to the silence even within the noise. And I love this part, Carl. I just love this story. I know an elderly monk who says, after many decades of cloistered life, I no longer pay attention to the silence. Now I simply am silence. I think he's onto something, and I know him well enough to know that he has a noisy brain just like the rest of us. But he also has learned to listen beneath the noise and between the words to point to where silence is no longer an object of his listening, but rather is the subject of his life. And that shift right there is is really the whole issue of I like how you described how you journeyed from that initial thought of uh, not recognizing silence because you're focusing on objects. And then that shift that happens over time to realize, well, it's not about the object, right? I, you were saying the theological shift. The theological shift is idolatry, right? I mean, if, if you make God an object, that's, an, mm -hmm. that's idolatrous, you know? And then when you allow to rest and be able to touch the face of God, now we're actually praying for the first time. <laughs> and and the reality is, is that most of us, are idolaters most of oh, the yeah. time. Oh yeah. That is the you know? sin. That's what we do. <laughs> you know? And 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 even even those of us who are pious churchgoers, yeah. in fact, sometimes we're the worst ones. Yeah, absolutely. Know? Because, you know, then to, to invoke Rene Girard, then we indulge in a little bit of scapegoating. Yep. You know? So it's um Yep. So I think silence is an unteachable lesson. How do we convey silence? Well we can't convey I can't give you silence. I mean, we can sit together in silence. That's a tremendous gift in and of itself. But all I'm giving you there is my attentiveness. Mm -hmm. You have to find the silence in your own heart. I can't point it out to you. Martin Laird can't point it out to you. Tilden Edwards can't point it out to you. Brother Elias Marischal can't point it out to you. Mary Margaret Funk, I can just recite all the amazing guests we've had on this, this podcast, who all are tremendous teachers of contemplation and of silence. But at the end of the day, we, you know, those of us who are their students, who are their acolytes, we have to find the silence for ourselves. And the, I think this is how it has been passed down from teacher to student, from mentor to I hate the word, but I don't know a better word, mentee, uh, from generation after generation after generation. And so, um, you know, I think I said in, in the introduction of the book, I say, you know, all I'm really trying to do here is I'm trying to say, hey, look over here. Yeah. <laughs> That's the purpose behind this book. Hey, look over here. Look, you know, look, yeah, look at my story, how I've learned how to love, I've learned how to grieve, I've learned how to be silent, I've learned how to trust. 
and I'm still learning those things. It's not like I'm a master by any sense. This book is 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 a companion piece. I, I, I was very touched, Kevin, when, you're, when you, you complimented the conversational tone of the book, because that's what it's meant to be. The last thing I want is to be somebody's guru. Mm. Uh, I just want to be your companion. Mm. You know, that, that's, that's what I hope is that, that this book can be. It's just a companion on the way for anybody who's, who's interested in, in exploring these, these unteachable lessons. You know, so. And the funny thing is it's an unteachable lesson and it's an unlearnable lesson too. Because yeah. if I tried to learn it, I would be making it an object. I just have to kind of at one point let it happen. As the monk lets silence, I, I no longer notice the silence. I am the silence, yeah. that shift. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that sometimes, you know, it's like happiness. Mm. You know, um, the more we try to be happy, paradoxically, the less happy we become. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that there's a level on which releasing the lust for happiness is an important step to becoming happy. Yeah, paradox of intention again. Let yeah, go of it. Exactly. Exactly. That's it in a nutshell. I would say thanks so much for joining us, Carl, but I'm, I'm lucky that uh, you get to, we get to be joined by you all the time. So uh, thanks for letting us turn the tables, I suppose. Right. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. It's, 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 uh, you know, speaking of vulnerability, you know, it's vulnerable to write a book, but then it's also vulnerable to talk about it. And so yeah. thank, thanks to both of you to, um, to creating a space that's congenial. Thank you for everything. And I thank yeah. you guys for this continued conversation. I look forward to next week's episode. Likewise. Thanks, Carl. Thank you. Thank you, guys. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way, you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. <laughs>